Okay. Hi, everyone. I'm calling the meeting to order at 6.31 p.m. Uh, we're going to do a roll call. Please say your name. Uh, please say I when I say your name. Uh, Commissioner Gildas. I believe he's excused. Commissioner Gabby. Here. Commissioner Jonathan. Here. Commissioner Malipa. Yeah, she she might be on I me. Mean, she is uh, driving on her way to Eugene, Oregon, for the Junior uh, Olympics. Yeah, yeah. Commissioner Melanthe, can you hear us? Okay. Uh, we'll get back to her. Okay, uh, she is with us, so uh, Commissioner Chloe. All right, Commi uh, Commissioner Shiram. Oh, there. She just acknowledged in the chat. She's here. Okay, sweet. Yeah. So, Commissioner Melanthas acknowledged that she's here, and then uh, Sri Ram has uh, mentioned that he's here as well. And Commissioner Christian, I'm here. Hi. And uh, I, I, Jory, am here too, uh, as a commissioner. And for staff, we got Parks and Community Services Director Lynn. Human Services Manager Jen Boone. Here. Human Services Coordinator Annie. Here. Youth Services Coordinator, Coordinator Reggie. Here. Human Services Coordinator Amanda. Here. And Homeless Outreach uh, Coordinator, Coordinator uh, is it pronounced Meli? Meli? Meli. Meli. Uh, uh, homeless Outreach Coordinator, Melly. Okay. Except we have our land acknowledgement and Commissioner Jonathan will read the land acknowledgement tonight. Oh, wow. Okay, hold on. Oh. <laughs> and, uh, I have it here yeah. somewhere, hold on. Awesome, we'll, we'll give you a minute. It's all good. See if this is the right one. Uh, so while Jonathan's looking it up for this week, is do we have a volunteer for next week for commissioners to read the land acknowledgement? Uh, land acknowledgement. I'll, I'll do it. Was that Sri Ram? Yeah, I'll do it next week. Awesome. Uh, next month. Sorry. Next month. Thank you. Yes. Thank you. All right. I've got it. Awesome, Jonathan. Please. We acknowledge that the Southern Salish Sea region lies on the unceded ancestral land of the Coast Salish peoples, the Duwamish, Muckleshoot, Puyallup, Skykomish, Snoqualmie, Snohomish, Suquamish, and Tulalip tribes, and other tribes of the Puget Sound Salish people, and that present-day city of Kirkland is in the traditional heartland of the lake people and the river people. We honor with gratitude the land itself, the first people who have reserved treaty rights and continue to live here since time immemorial, and their ancestral heritage. Thank you so much, Commissioner Jonathan. Do we have a motion to approve the May 23rd, 2023 meeting minutes? So I had a question about the minutes real fast. I think section eight communications, the heading seems to be spelled wrong. I'm not sure that matters all that much, but wanted to point it out. So do we have a, a motion to approve the minutes? Um, by Christian with the amendment. With the correction of the with spelling, the yes, that would be my motion. Okay, do we have a second? 
All right, second by Jonathan. Uh, if you're in favor, please say aye uh, and raise your hand. Aye. Aye. Uh, anyone opposed, please say no. Any abstentions? All right, passes unanimously. Reggie, do we have any guests in the audience? Uh, we do not, I believe. Yeah, everybody that we have in the um, audience are part going to be part of Jack's presentation or are to support Jack in his presentation. Um, and we'll, I guess if they have something to say, they will um, go ahead and do that when we get to the senior council presentation. Awesome. Speaking of presentations tonight, we're joined by our special guest from the Brazilian Community Services to talk about their work on the east side. They have a presentation prepared for us before opening it up to a Q&A. And with that, um, do our guests from the um, Brazilian Community Services uh, need the ability to share the screen or anything, anything that we can support them with? I, I can share. This is Pablo Ortega from Brazilian Community Services. Diana uh, Ferreira is here with me as well. I believe I have the ability to share my screen. So let me try that now. Avert your eyes to all my open windows, please. <laughs> you got it. Uh, can I get a, a verbal that you all can see my screen? We, we can, can see, see it. it. Yep. Perfect. Thank you. Okay to start, or is there another uh, another piece of this beforehand? Uh, you're good to start. Thank you, okay. Pablo. Thank you. Thank you so much. Again, Pablo Ortega, board member for Brazilian Community Services, joined by uh, Diana, uh, Diana, excuse me, Ferreira. Uh, we'll have an opportunity for us to both introduce ourselves, but first of all, we'd like to talk about our mission. Um, and our mission is the Brazilian Community Services exists to be a facilitator for the Brazilian immigrant community in the Pacific Northwest to integrate them into American society. Our goal is to be a cultural navigator, advocate, and to inspire with love and compassion for our people to build a better tomorrow. So that's our mission. Um, this is our team. We don't have pictures associated with them, but our president is uh, Venderson Godoy. Our vice president is uh, Marcus Lima, Kathy Falseta, myself, and Michelle Godoy are uh, our board members. And then I also have um, a project team member on the line with us, and hopefully she can say her name and introduce herself a little bit. And this is uh, Diana Ferreira. Hi, now? <laughs> so I'm Diane, and Diane Ferreira. Um, I'm from Brazil, and I'm also a pastor of a Brazilian church, and I think that's it. <laughs> Thanks for joining us tonight, Diane. Thank you. Thank you, Danny. And while you were introducing yourself, I got to fight off a bee, so thank you for that. Um, <laughs> <laughs> Reginaldo de Jesus and Priscila Carmo are also uh, project team members for the Brazilian Community Services. And if you're wondering, well, what project are they exactly on? Uh, I'm actually gonna get to that in, as part of our presentation, but that's our board. 
Um, so again, we're very thankful to the city of Kirkland for uh, the invitation for the opportunity to present to you all today. Um, the mission is very broad in terms of what, what we would like to do as, uh, on behalf of the, and in, in walking with the uh, Brazilian immigrant community, but at the same time, there are very specific needs that we're looking to, to fill, whether it be food relief, uh, financial assistance, um, job or small business assistance, uh, housing, shelter, transportation, legal assistance, especially around the areas of, of immigration law, um, access to healthcare, support with schools and equitable outcomes for, for all students, especially those furthest from, um, from, uh, furthest from, from educational justice, and then social, emotional, and spiritual needs, uh, counseling with families, with youth, with parents, with couples, etc. So those are the needs that we're looking to fulfill. We either do a direct serve or we partner with other organizations in order to fulfill those needs. And I'll give an example in a little bit about some of the partnerships that we've engaged with. Um, when we say cultural navigator, um, specifically, we're looking to address basic needs between the Brazilian immigrant community and the um, mainstream community here in the Pacific Northwest, specifically King County and the East Side. Um, basic needs, so as an example, uh, we'll partner with Nourishing Networks, we'll partner with Farmer Frog, um, organizations like that in order to serve needs for this immigrant community. Um, healthcare, uh, well, I'll talk about a big project that we're currently involved with the Washington Department of Health as well as Center Cultural Mexicano. Uh, translation, um, things like that for, for uh, Brazilian immigrants who English is not their first language. And then we also like to think, think of ourselves as a warm handoff so while we may not be able to service your needs directly, we'll um, connect you with resources in the community that can, but rather than just giving you a phone number or an email address or a website to attend to, we'll make that that one-on-one -on -one or three-on-one -on -one connection with another human being that we know can take you the rest of the way in terms of uh, fulfilling your needs. So we refer to that as a warm handoff. And then the other area of a focus for us is uh, family well-being. Um, specifically, we host teen groups, we host uh, affinity and cultural groups, whether it be at our religious sites or it be at uh, some of our partner sites, for example, Lake Washington School District. Uh, we host affinity groups there as well. Um, we provide counseling, we provide parental support workshops, etc. Looking to grow more in those areas as well, but definitely have our, our, our foot in the door in those, in those specific areas. Um, we're a grassroots organization. We're about a two-year-old organization, um, about a few months away from uh, finally receiving our 501c3 designation by the IRS. Um, we've uh, been working really hard, especially in these past six months, to build our organizational capacity in order to serve more needs and, and more of our community members as well. Um, we wanna expand our presence, not only in the Kirkland area, but also in other East Side communities that we know have uh, a large um, uh, Brazilian immigrant population. And then we're really proud to say this, that we were recently awarded a $250,000 grant from the Washington Department of Health um, as well as in partnership, excuse me, with Centro Cultural Mexicano here in Redmond 
um, in order to provide COVID-19 messaging to the Brazilian community. Uh, the nice thing about that grant is that it has allowed us not only to, to spread the news in terms of, of, of uh, healthcare to, to the community, but also allow us to build our capacity as a community organization to serve more needs. Um, always on the hunt for good opportunities, looking to partner with other agencies and other cities. But um, again, mentioning before, really proud about the, the grant that we received. And so, as you heard me earlier before mentioned, three, three of our members, our project uh, team members, this is the project that they're involved with, the Department of Health and Centro Cultural uh, Project. And Diani, as well as Priscilla and um, Reggie have been very instrumental in moving that forward. The project, or excuse me, the grant was awarded to us in June and it'll go through March of 2024. Um, so far, so good in terms of progress. And um, again, just looking for more opportunities to, to partner with other agencies and, and government institutions. Um, Diani, I don't know if you wanna add anything to some of the work that you've done as far as the project before we open up for questions. Yes, yes, it can work, I, I can say it. Um, we are now like going, doing a lot of events and we are participating in a lot of events too, to spread the, about the message and to the people know us like uh, as a, organization and when we go in some a lot of places we make connections we meet people and through that we can grow like organization so basically is that we are every month we are participating in a lot of events to build like um to know more people to spread the word about the covid to like make the people like conscient about about the covid message about the, how we need to proceed with the all the are healthy and we are trying to help the brazilians to do that um basically is that and we are like trying to grow our organization and social media and and everything to have more opportunities in the the future. Uh, thank you, Diani. Uh, recently, we had this past Saturday, we had the annual Brazilian Fest. Uh, the numbers are still are still coming in, um, but I I can pretty confidently say we had more than five hundred people attend this past yes. Saturday. Um, I think we, it's almost 2,000 people, Pablo. Wow. It's a <laughs> lot of Brazilians. 2,000 people attend um, this mm -hmm. past weekend. Um, we have a fall sports event and a uh, concert planned for, uh, for September and October. We can definitely um, send over information uh, about that. The sports event will definitely be in the Kirkland area, Juanita High School. Um, more to more to come on the on the concert, but again, we can provide you all with that information to spread in your community as well. And um, we can open it up for questions. And in fact, I'll I'll stop sharing. This is the last point in our on our PowerPoint anyway, um, and open it up for questions. <clears throat> uh, questions for Pablo and Diane. 
Right, Christian. Thanks for the presentation. It was really interesting and, and it sounds like there's a lot of really great work that's going on. I was curious if you could talk a little bit more about when you think about the Brazilian community, what are the top three needs for that immigrant group? I'm just not familiar and I'd love to hear a little bit about what are the things that they're looking for? What are what are the needs that are not addressed? Diani, would you would you like to handle that or do you want me to take that? Okay, um, I think the three top needing now is, I think job, um, because the most of the Brazilian work in like jobs, jobs like a house cleaner, construction, and things like that, and financial. They are so many Brazilians struggling, struggling with that, because there's. There's two parts of Brazilians here. There's the ones they come like with the job and the other ones, they doesn't come with a job. They just come to the United States to start a new life. So for that one, I think the jobs is a, a very hard thing. And put two about because of the, the some some of them they don't have job they struggle a lot of financial and that's a part when we start to help a lot is when in the pandemic we see a lot of Brazilians without job and a lot of people we need that's when we start the community service and I think about immigration too it's like a legal uh, status in the united states a very hard situation there's a lot of brazilians here and they didn't have a status and we need a lot of like help in that area with lawyers and things like that and you can add pablo if you think yeah so i i would say both of those so so jobs immigration status and then the third one and we're not unique because i'm sure there are a lot of groups that that have the same uh concern is housing yeah. um i would say those those three things if you ask me for a fourth it would probably be social emotional and and just just dealing with trauma all kinds of trauma from transitioning from a foreign country here to the united states to coming off a pandemic to um, families kind of coming apart because of financial situations so you only asked for three, but we gave you four. Those would be it. So financial, jobs, housing, immigration, yeah. and social emotional. Thank you for sharing. Yep. Right, next up, we got uh, Sriram. Thank, thank you for that presentation. I wanted to just uh, ask a couple questions. One is what's the kind of the size of the population that's kind of requires the support and is it and what's the rate at which it's growing and then the other question is this you know you mentioned the pandemic and the trauma and yes it's caused a lot of trauma in many communities i just wanted to get a sense for where the brazilian community is at what are you know are you are things getting better what more do you need for let's say a faster recovery from the impact of the pandemic yeah, from from the uh, from the last census that was conducted back in 2020, delayed 2021, 
Um, for King County alone, the size of the Brazilian population, both adults and children, uh, was estimated to be around 16,000. But we feel that that number is undercounted. Um, a lot of folks were hesitant to self-report, fearing some kind of backlash with uh, immigration. Um, my day job, aside from being on the Brazilian Community Services, is also um, to work for the uh, Lake Washington School District. I can tell you student-wise what that's looking like for us. We've, we've got a sizable amount of people from uh, Brazil that have recently arrived and probably in the 1200 or so, and that's just students, not counting adults or other non-school-aged uh, children that may be in the household. And it's a huge increase from uh, for us, excuse me, even within the past year and a half. So definitely a fast growing community. Um, numbers are a little a little wonky, but it's it's kind of like that, especially when you when you talk about um, immigration status being shaky. So I hope that gives you a little bit of insight. Thank you. And and the other question was about the pandemic. Like, what's the? How was the? You know, I can't. The pandemic isn't quite over. I won't say it's over, but it's definitely in. A, you can say in more of a much. It's a much better phase, let's say, with a lot less. Uh, of the impact. So I'm just curious uh, where you're at or where the community is at in terms of kind of recovering from the trauma of the pandemic and what yeah, you need. The, the, the recovery piece is, is slow going, unfortunately. Um, what hasn't helped is um, misinformation that still exists out there about, about the pandemic, right? Well, it's gone and it's no longer here. And yes, it is very much diminished, thankfully. Um, but it's still it's still an issue, and then the 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 vestiges of what the pandemic brought, especially some of the things that Diani mentioned earlier, joblessness, um, being in dire financial straits, that's still carrying on, even though the pandemic is is waning. Those those effects are still carrying on, um, and so this this is a very vibrant and resilient community, but also has. Um, you know, has a chip stacked against them as well. And that's part of why the, the Brazilian Community Services came to be is to serve is to serve that need. Diane, I, I don't know if you want to add anything else. To that. Yeah, I think they are slowly re recovering, but it's a hard process. We, we are like a church, for example, we know a lot of people, they still struggling about emotions because of everything, uh, because of the financial and so now slowly in place, especially financial. They are because of the, uh, there are a lot of people because of the type of the job, for example, house cleaner, construction, things like that. House cleaner normally they no one wants and uh, people inside of your house in the pandemic. So because of that, the people like stay uh, a lot of months without paying the rent, for example. So they still pay now. Because a lot of like condos, they need to like pay a little bit for a month 
So they are slow. They are, I think that what Pablo say, they are slowly recovering from, from that. Okay. Uh, Jack, as a guest, uh, we're not able to ask questions. Um, imagine you can email human services to ask a follow-up question or to the organization directly. Next up, we have Commissioner Malanta. Commissioner Malanta, if you can hear us, do you have a question? Um, so I think Melantha's question is about education and I'll try to build off that question unless she answers more, but, uh, perhaps, um, ex especially with your, your day job, Pablo at the Lake Washington school district, um, is there anything you want to elaborate on the the struggles yeah. um, or anything that like specific needs that you've noticed? Yeah, I, I think multifaceted. Um, if we're talking, let's let's start with adults, right? So if, if we're talking about adults, it's job skills training. Um, you know, like like many other immigrant waves in this country, um, menial labor might be a way into you know foot in the door kind of thing, but um, in terms of, of acquiring higher skills in order to make higher pay, in order to, to have um, more, more um, firmer uh, financial success, right? Those things are definitely necessary. In terms of our students, our K through 12 students, um, you know, the basic things like just learning English um, is definitely a, a need. Um, but before you can even get to the math, the reading, and all of those things, there are definite um, traumatic circumstances that need to be dealt with. Um, and, and sometimes our teachers are equipped to do that, but, but not all the time. Um, and there's some sort of specialized service that's required there. Um, and unfortunately, as, as a school district, and we're not unique in that, um, we, we kind of don't have all of those those. Um, options available for, for our students. Um, then the other piece I would say is ensuring that students, all students, but because we're talking about um, specifically Brazilian immigrant students, that they see themselves in school. So they see themselves in the curriculum. They see themselves in um, the institution that they're attending daily in order to grow their sense of belonging. That, that really is what makes or breaks a student's success and achievement level is if they see that when I walk into the school, there's a path to success and there are multiple, multiple adults in the school that believe that I can succeed at, at high levels. So that's kind of a roundabout answer, but, but I think that that's kind of what we deal with in terms of education from on the adult side to, to, the, to the student side. So we'll get to Jonathan in one sec. I was gonna ask a clarifying question. When you say traumatic experiences, what are those and yeah. uh, so yeah. so so just gaining access into the united states especially if you know if mom and dad didn't come through a work visa with microsoft you know that's a different path mm -hmm. if mom or dad or guardian got here um, um 
as being undocumented that mm -hmm. that is definitely a, a harrowing experience and the adults obviously have that trauma but also the students have that trauma and then once you've arrived here you know it's the shock of this is not brazil this is the united states and this is not the united states this is pacific northwest so mm -hmm. it's vastly different from from the homeland that you left behind um mom and dad or guardian are working double shifts triple shifts and so a lot of times you find students having to take care of other kids, rather, having to take care of other kids um, and not necessarily having an opportunity to deal with their own trauma. Um, so those are those are the things that that I refer to when we talk about trauma. It's multifaceted. It's not just one type of trauma. There are a lot of things that events rather that that have led to it. Thank you so much, Jonathan. Sure. Thank you. Yes, thank you for the presentation, Paulo and Dan. Really, really good. Um, I had a couple questions. One, um, and Jen may just nod her head or not, I, I believe to get, to get city funding through our funding cycle, you have to be a 501c3 nonprofit. Is that right? Okay. Yes, with the exception, you can go through a fiscal sponsor if you're not, if you don't have that status. Okay. And I know you mentioned you're um, in the process of doing that. Do you have any idea when that will happen? It'll be by the end of the year, but we do have a fiscal sponsor, um, and that's through Vine Church Seattle. We, in fact, the the grant that we we were awarded by the Department of Health and Centro Cultural Mexicano was was through a uh, through the fiscal sponsor. So we definitely have that right. as well. Okay, because I know our funding cycle will begin again next spring in the March April, where we'll start receiving those applications and all. So that'd be yeah, awesome. great to have that in place. Thank I'll, you. I'll and also, uh, we we are in the we are having those conversations, and these conversations have been going on for a little while. Great. So, <clears throat> and we and yeah. So, Great. yeah. And then my follow up. Sorry. And then my follow up question was, um, where are people located in the Puget Sound area? When you say you know approximately sixteen to maybe up to twenty five thousand people, where where are you finding um, people um, living? Um, so I'll 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 add what I know, and then I'd like Deanne to to chime in as well. Um, Kirkland is, for a variety of reasons, is is a big landing spot for uh, for the Brazilian community. So there are definitely mm -hmm. a lot of folks in the Kirkland area of Kirkland proper um, that that reside there from the Brazilian community. And then Deanne, if you want to add more, we yeah. call them hotspots of of populations. Yes, Kirkland is a very has a very big population of Brazilians, but now they are going to other places because of the the rent the rent is too high. So now we have a lot of Brazilians in Linwood and Everett and Rental too, because they they can afford more there. But definitely Kirkland is the most, I think is I think is the most place they looking for live because it's close in the middle of everyone. So it's a lot of Brazilians in Kirkland. Great. Great. And the other you. thing that, that is attracting folks to Kirkland is um, when we speak to our community members, it's the sense of safety, the, yeah. uh, the opportunity for jobs and mm -hmm. uh, the school system. So they, they definitely speak up those things as far as why it is that they that they're attracted to this area. Great, thank you. Um, when people hear those uh, those benefits of Kirkland, 
from from Brazil. Uh, how do they hear about that? Is it from word of mouth? Is it um, the the context is is that I've had a really good friend that came to the U.S. Unfortunately, she was deported, but she became a doctor in Brazil. They also had a uh, wrestler that did really well. Um, not because it's one of those situations where I'm not going to say the person's name, but uh, I always wondered wow, how do they hear about Kirkland? Like, if anything, Seattle's right there. So, like, why, why how do we get notoriety? notoriety? And um, is it through like friend groups, churches, or how do they, how do they hear about us? So, churches, um, and then like other immigrant communities, when you know someone who knows someone who's right in, in this area that, that has that familiarity. So, you, you tend to be attracted to that area. WhatsApp. As, as backward as it might be, is huge um, in immigrant communities. And so that's that's one way where word of mouth spreads. Uh, Deanne, any other, any other ideas um, as to how people find out about, uh, about Kirkland? Yeah, then that's a Brazilian store. The first Brazilian store is in Kirkland. So the Brazilians meet a lot of the people there to pick up for the work. So they want to leave closed of that Brazilian stores. It's a coffee shop. Now they have in a lot of their place, but the first one is starting Kirkland. It's the name is Kitanda. And that's, uh, it, this is one of the big reasons that people start to come for Kirkland. Okay. Thank you. That I know, but there's a lot of others too. <laughs> uh, uh, Commissioner Gabby? Uh, thank you very much for the presentation, Diane and Pablo. Uh, listening to you, I think uh, it's the same. Uh, it's a very similar story that we have with all all all, all, all other immigrant communities. At least I'm um, speaking for the Spanish-speaking communities. We are kind of sharing the same uh, struggles and at the same time the same joys of life, and you know, sharing our culture and the sports and everything. But I wanted to ask you um, about the language access because I know that's also been a barrier for the Brazilian community because there were not, I mean, many things have been translating into other languages, but I think we are kind of a little delayed on you know, language access for, for Portuguese documents, especially with the, the health, well, the health and uh, um, maybe in the school and other other parts, no? So um, how, how do you find yourselves, you know, going in the school for, for language access, translation, documents, and also for the help and, and other, other things, other services that are um, very, very elemental, principal uh, services for, for the Brazilian community? Yeah, I, uh, I'll set this up, but I'd like Diani just to speak to it. I. So I'm, I'm culturally, I'm, I'm Mexican. Like I speak Spanish mm -hmm. and let me tell you, when I hear Portuguese, there's maybe every sixth word I pick up, but it is night and day in terms of Spanish and Portuguese. They're, they are not the same language by far, but you know, when people say Latin America, they just assume that Spanish is the overall, yeah. it is, it's the majority of the languages, but not Brazil. And Brazil is a very big country. And Portuguese is is their language. And I think that's a big struggle where people tend to 
um, lump us all Latin Americans into the same pot thinking we all speak Spanish and that isn't the case. And I'll let Diani just expound on that if that's okay. Yes. It's very hard, the situation of the language here. I, I can speak for, from my own experience. When I arrived here, I didn't speak nothing of English. Oh my God, it's very hard, very hard. And the people are scared of even try because we will speak wrong things. I Until today, I never study here. I speak because I learn with my kids. I learn with... Uh, in the time I was here in the TV and everything, but it's very hard to learn. So the, we are helping the people now. We have people helping in, in translation, but normally they're there. When I arrive here, for example, I, I have uh, uh, my sister-in-law live here. So she helped me a lot. But, for example, I can't do nothing. I can't speak on the phone. I can't go in the supermarket to speak with someone. And we don't doesn't have nothing for Brazilians here. And every place we go, they say, oh, you, you speak Spanish. No, I don't speak Spanish. I speak Portuguese. It's different. And, and I, I can tell that because when I arrived here and I was studying for the drive license, I pick up the, the book in Spanish and I start to read and I say, oh my gosh, I was thinking it's similar, but it's very different. So it's very hard to me to, to do this test in Spanish because I, I was thinking, no, I think it's, it's the same, almost the same speak. But when we start, I start to read in Spanish, I say, Oh my goodness, I, I don't know what, what I'm going to do. So the same thing, they need other people, other Brazilians to help in translation and to help to enroll the kids in school, to help in everything, to even go in the restaurant to ask for food, we need help. So it's hard. The language is hard and we doesn't have nothing in Portuguese. For Brazilians here. That's why we, we we start the Brazilian community service because the Brazilians need help and we doesn't have nothing. We the Brazilians go to the more e easy for, for 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 us is Spanish for sure. But even in Spanish is hard because it's not our language. Hey, Jonathan, you're going to finish us off for questions. A really good one, and we could spend all night on this. <laughs> I'm learning a lot. Um, what was my question? Oh, man. <laughs> uh, oh, I know. Can the city, um, does the city publish materials in Portuguese? Are we working with the community to, you know, in some way to, you know, with a strong resilient population to make our services and all the information website you know all that in portuguese as well do you know anybody know annie or jen Reddy? that would be the million dollar question that i think every institution is up against of how do we as community changes we've seen a huge increase in need for translation with portuguese so we have partnered on a few things to translate but it is not consistently translated and something that 
we're working with Erica and her team on and figuring out how we can continue to connect with communities, recognizing that if we continue to ask for community input in a language, in a language that doesn't make sense, that they're not able to engage and we can't follow up and continue to build those relationships. So it's a work in progress, but it does require significant funding and resources to do it the right way and not Google Translate. Um, again, making sure that it's a meaningful and like it makes sense to those in the community. So that's a challenge. So we have Google Translate embedded, but that's kind of the bare minimum, mm -hmm. I would say, across most institutions now. Now it's figuring out how do we pay people to do it and do it correctly in the proper dialects. So cool. Thanks. Um, you didn't ask us, but I'll I'll mention the work that we've done with Department of Health um, with King County is is that's actually the biggest piece is how do you take their messaging and make it so that it's accessible to people that speak Portuguese using their graphics, using, you know, but making it culturally acceptable that um, people that have recently arrived from Brazil where English is not their first language can understand and, and, the, and the message you're trying to convey is nuance and all of those things. That's really been the biggest component of, of the grant along with events that we pulled together. But I would say the messaging and, and just the translation alone is a big part of, of the grant. Thank you, you two. Thank you so much. I uh, just want to give you, you. A, let's give a round of applause. Thank you. Um, with that, again, thank you, Pablo and Diane. Uh, for our commissioners and audience members, uh, Shabbat of Kirkland is not available due to an unexpected travel issue. From our commissioners, is there a motion to move item 6B, which was their presentation, to the August meeting? I move so. And uh, really quickly, Pablo and uh, Danny, um, you're welcome to stay if you want, but if you want to head off, you're more than welcome to as well. As well. So thank you, and feel free to thank stay, you. and feel free to go whenever you prefer. Thank you. Have a good thank evening. You. Thanks for having us. Have a good yeah. evening. Nice to meet you both. We have a motion from uh, Shiram. Is there a second? I'll second. Yeah. Okay. All right, we got Christian seconding. Uh, all in favor say aye or, uh, and raise your hand. Aye. 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 Well, let's say no. Uh, say no. Any abstentions? Uh, please say so. Okay. Um, Monta, if you can hear us, uh, is that a is that a yes? I can you hear me? Oh yeah, yeah. Thank you, thank you. Okay. Sweet passes. Okay. Um, I'll just take me one second. Okay. So next up, we have our special guest that was, uh, you can see him a sec about a few minutes ago. Uh, we would like to j welcome Jack Stout, chair of the Kirkland Senior Council to talk about the work plan and current needs. Jack, take it away. Well, thanks for having me. Uh, you all have a packet of information, <clears throat> excuse me, that I think covers a lot 
it is something that's going to be posted on our website, so you don't even have to have the piece of paper. You can go there soon. There's an earlier version of it up there now uh, on the Kirkland site. Um, the work plan is something that's reviewed every year. Uh, it is part of the uh, human services uh, aspect of the city's plan. And so you fit into that just as we do. Our focus is seniors. And in case you didn't know, that makes up 32.7% of the population of the city of Kirkland today. Yes, we're a big group because we're 50 or older. So some of you may even fit that and are part of us. I won't say who. I'm well past what your ages. In any case, I come to the Senior Council back in 2005 when it was about three years old. I joined it because I retired and started volunteering in the community. I was with it for two years and was very impressed with what was going on, but one of the other charities I volunteered, Westbridge Disability Ministry, asked me to step up and join the board and then become their executive director. So I learned about the commission and the Kirkland granting process very quickly and created grant applications to you folks back a decade ago. So I appreciate all that you do for so many of the charities in the community. I know it's not an easy job. Those applications are difficult. Confirmation of the city requirements were complex. And I don't envy your requirement to read what must be dozens and dozens of them. And they're all worthy, but you only have so many dollars to give. We're funded by the city. We're volunteers. We don't get paid. The projects that we administer or manage within that work plan are supported by the city. Uh, one of those, and I sent Pablo a little message that they should have seniors in the Brazilian group and they should know about the senior resource guide. It's in English, but if you can get a translator, it's got hundreds of sites to go to that can help seniors get connected. And hopefully that's a little bit of information and support for that community, just as it is for any. Um, I think you know that the Senior Council has been around a while. I rejoined it seven years ago, and well, not seven, I'm, I'm going off this year because you're only allowed to be here for six years and then you have to take vacation, but I'll probably come back. But I've been involved in a lot of the project over this period of time. Uh, in the past year, we've done things like re-establish uh, the Senior Resource Guide, which will be published next month. Reggie can tell you more about that. She's actually involved in it. Uh, reinvigorate after COVID, the Viva Volunteer Program, which was focused on getting seniors connected in the community to volunteer with the many different types of nonprofit groups that are supported through the city. We're now doing that in a hybrid version, uh, taking it on the road, so to speak, rather than asking people to come to us. So we go to the farmer's market and we'll be in other community uh, venues over the year. We're also activist um, politicians in a small way. We have a group of people that are connected with the Boeing Network on Aging, or the Bellevue Network on Aging, excuse me. And we advocate with our politicians, uh, not just in the city of Kirkland, but in the state of Washington and nationally for senior issues. Um, primary issues that you know about are housing and uh, access to transportation, healthcare, those kinds of things. They're a continuum 
in all age groups, but for seniors, they become more difficult, especially when you are perhaps house rich, but income poor. And in Kirkland, that's becoming a very common thing. Um, also, there are food in inconsistencies within our community of seniors, especially if they are on limited income and not doing well with rising cost in the city. Uh, but most of our programs are outreach programs trying to reach the community through the Kirkland uh, Community Center and the programs that are held there. Uh, in the next year, we'll be producing new programs similar to the ones we've run with John Wilson, our assessor, to help people understand how to apply for senior uh, concessions in their property taxes. We'll be looking at Medicare, we'll be looking at uh, safety in homes and universal design and other things. So uh, I think that because you have an outline in print, uh, that's probably enough for me to speak to and just allow you to turn this into a Q&A session and perhaps address uh, individually those things that you wish to talk about. Yeah, Jen and staff, would it be possible if we can get a share screen of the outline he's talking about? Yeah, I understand we have it in our emails more than likely. I'll double check for that myself, but um, just for the sake of <laughs> it everyone. Is, it is attached to your packet. I, I've looked at it already. Yeah, it's in the packet. All right, thank you. Can you all see that? Yeah. Yes. yes. I can read for you just the basic topics that are there uh, within the human services objectives for the city of Kirkland. We have a goal, number one, that is to maintain and improve the quality of life for Kirkland residents 15 and older. That's a very broad statement, but under that, we typically focus on legislative action and local advocacy and community engagement. Goal two is to provide opportunities for residents 15 and older to be active, connected, and engaged in the community. And the VIVA volunteer program is the program I mentioned just a bit ago that tries to connect them with nonprofits. We've actually developed a website that we can link people to that have two dozen nonprofits on there and more to come, uh, connecting them directly with the volunteer recruiters within those uh, organizations. There's also an art show. Recently, we held the 13th annual art show. We had 71 individual artists and 160 pieces of art displayed at Merrill Gardens for several days. Uh, and we award uh, little blue ribbons to the folks uh, selected by the community. It's a wonderful way of displaying the talents of our seniors in the community and getting people engaged. Goal three is to provide access to information, resources, services, and programs for older adults. Part of that is the educational forums that I just mentioned including the property tax relief and fraud prevention and fall prevention and things like that. And uh, the one minute bridge market, we typically attend those markets 
and share this senior resource guide with people and hand them out. There's no cost to those. It's a heavy document for those who don't want to carry around a smartphone in their pocket, but would rather have a coffee table book. It's got a lot of information and is very helpful. Uh, just recently, a few weeks ago, we had a person stop by the tent and mentioned that when he was diagnosed with Parkinson's, he didn't know where to go. But he picked up that book, found resources he could connect with, and he thanked us for that. I'm sure there are hundreds who have done that over the years. Transportation and the Eastside Easy Rider Coalition, we participate in that. We participate with forums sponsored by Hopelink uh, that are connecting us with all the many different transportation groups in the area. And as you probably do know, because of budget limitations, drivers and mechanical issues, transportation systems are not functioning the way they used to. Roads get canceled and seniors who don't drive anymore find it frustrating not to be able to get where they need to go. There are some new programs, one-click services they're calling them, that we're looking into and discussing with people, and we hope they're a solution to limitations in transportation. Um, I mentioned the resource guide, and that's available in many locations, but you can pick one up at the Peter Kirk Center at any time. 04 was encourage affordable and appropriate design older adult housing. This is a significant problem and one that's very frustrating to most of us, although members of the council may have good housing themselves. They look to where would I go if I do sell my house? And in many cases, the answer is, I don't think it could be in Kirkland. And that's frustrating for folks. And I know people personally that have moved out of rental situations here even though in their 70s, to move 20 or 30 or 40 miles away simply because that's the only way they can afford the rent. I'm sure you're familiar with that issue. When we talk to our representatives, both in the uh, city and in the state, there aren't clear options for what is often referred to as middle housing. And one of the things we've recently discovered in our own community, new housing developments labeled as senior housing or rents for a studio or $4,000 a month are not equipped with universal design. They don't have rails in the bathtub. They don't have 36 inch doors for a wheelchair. That's a serious failing on the part of our city and the state to recognize the need of seniors. And if you're not aware of the statistics, seniors in a very short period of time will outnumber 18 year olds and younger. There's no way to avoid it. We're just cantankerous old folks that insist on living longer. So uh, aging in place, universal design is one of the campaigns we're involved in. We have committees that are specifically engaging in each of these areas. And of the 17 people that are on the council, they all do far more just as you do than just attend one meeting a month. They're involved in committee meetings, public meetings, lobbying sessions, and a variety of other things. So that's a quick summation and hopefully it gives you some thought to answer, ask questions. Uh, Chiro? 
Thank you, Jack, for that presentation. And I learned a lot reading that. I mean, I did not realize there was so much, uh, so many activities and you know stuff going on to support the seniors in the community. It's really great to learn about that. I think one one thing that I didn't I wanted to hear more from you on is in in home care for seniors because you know it's not it's affordable housing, but people also need care as they're older, they need support services. Mm -hmm. And I'm curious what is being done in that regard, you know, in terms of, you know, what the act level of availability is today, the affordability is today, what's the need and, you know, how, what's being taught in terms of what needs to be done to support the in-home care need. Well, the primary focus we have is to try and collect all of those agencies that provide that service to contact with them and then include them in the guide that I mentioned. We don't have any influence directly over controls for pricing in that industry, but we do try to, as we go through and assemble the resource guide, validate those businesses to the degree we can. Um, but it's a very difficult thing to do in today's age. One of the things we noted in going through a review of the old guide to publish the new one is a lot of those businesses failed during that period of time and are no longer available. And that's a labor issue in many cases. Uh, Thank you. Um, just to add, can you hear me? Yep. Just to add to that, um, I know that like Washington state is like one of the few progressive states that's doing like the new like payroll tax to help offset some of the home care and stuff that's going to be going on. It's not going to really affect our seniors now, but hopefully it'll play a role in the future. But I wanted to say that um, being a part of Kirkland for so, gosh, can I even say decades at this point? Oh my goodness. Well, being a part of Kirkland for quite some time, I've noticed a change where we've gone from like at one point, I would say like early 80s, late 90s, very being a very young culture to transitioning to that senior culture where we even have the senior crossing signs and everything like that. Do we actually know like the ratio of seniors in, in Kirkland? Because it seems like there is a very significant amount, like it's a very large part of our community. Well, as I, I mentioned earlier, um, the Latest census data for Kirkland says that, again, this is 50 plus, is 32.7% of the population. As you move up into um, segments of aging, 50 to 60, 60 to 70, 80 plus, obviously that, per that percentage goes down. But one of the statistics tells us that the 80 plus segment is increasing. People are living longer and healthier lives. And as long as they can stay in place, and this is an ambition that you will hear over and over again in senior circles, aging in place. It means staying in the home that I've built, in the neighborhood that I've grown and used to and cultured relationships with, perhaps with the church community I've attended for 10 or 20 years. And staying in place means living a good life with the health care I need, in-home care if I, if I can afford it, um, having those social services that I need close to me via transportation that I can access. That's part of that aging vision 
um, that objective, that goal. People who are seniors don't all decide to go to Arizona and retire. They don't all decide to go to uh, an expensive senior plus housing community. Aging in place is often the mission in their mind and the hope that they have when they retire. Uh, Jonathan? Hey, Jack, thank you for your presentation. Um, one of the things that's um, top of mind um, <laughs> everywhere, but especially for our work, is uh, diversity. And I'm just wondering, in looking at the, uh, the photo that's in the uh, packet, um, I'm wondering what is being done to increase the diversity of uh, the uh, council? Like, what is the outreach done when you have open slots? Uh, how are you uh, integrating uh, other cultures, people of color, people with disabilities, uh, all sorts of you know diversity dimensions as you uh, you know try and have a council that really mirrors the community? Well, I'm sure we do the same things that you do. That is, we try to use all of the city's venues to publicize our openings. And we have been disappointed, particularly during the COVID years, the city's inability to publish on a wider um, spectrum of uh, media that we have openings. And in fact, in the past couple of years, we've had some difficulties with the scheduling for that. Uh, we started earlier this year. We've got it on our website now. One of the problems was the city's limitation in letting us do something in the website, which we corrected just a few months ago. Um, but we're limited with the media that we have. What we do have is, for example, in the resource guide, there is a page in there asking for people to apply. Uh, the website hopefully now emphasizes that. Um, and the parks um, brochures that go out has two pages about the senior console and invites people to participate. We don't get as many applicants as we would like. For example, in this last go around, we were down to 12 members. We've got five applicants, one of whom was returning from a sabbatical, if you want to call it that. Uh, we were able to recruit four. One bowed out before we could get them on board because we told them about the amount of time that it would take. And one left two months afterwards because of a job change. None of the applicants would fit the objective that you've just emphasized and that I would appreciate being able to accomplish as well. So it is marketing and it is marketing within the community that we have and the tools that the city gives us. But if we could recruit people who speak Portuguese and Spanish and a variety of other languages uh, who are immigrants in the community and could join us, we would love to have that. We do try to reach out in the community through various other agendas, such as farmers market and other places and connect. Uh, but oftentimes when you tell people they've got to do monthly meetings and two other meetings besides that a month and be honest with them, they don't seem to have the time. And I understand that. Mm. Um, yeah, I'd be happy to um, talk to you separately, give you some ideas. I know, for example, in September, there's the, I think it's September, Annie, the big health fair, Kirkland Health Fair is coming up. What a great place to have a booth. And, uh, you know, you'll see a great diversity of people coming through there to create awareness uh, for the 
the council and and uh, and uh, just starting to build relationships. Because I know when you have uh, openings, sometimes it can appear kind of transactional. Like we have an opening when you need to apply, but if they don't know you or trust you or feel like there's a relationship, it may be harder to get people interested. But if you can start building bridges into the communities, uh, it can help when people, when you have openings that they feel like, oh, this is a place I can feel safe and, and they're gonna listen to me and I can have a voice. Um, so happy to, and I'm sure that the staff could share ideas too, but I'd be happy to, to share as well um, offline. Yeah, I'm open for a cup of coffee anytime. Believe me, I'm learning, trying to continue to be aging and learning at all times. Yeah, we all we one all are the, on that journey. Yeah, <laughs> one of you. the things about the um, the Viva program and getting out to the farmers market and being involved in health fair as we had planned to. There's also a senior resource event scheduled at the Peter Kirk Center coming up. We'll be there. And we were hoping to go to Oktoberfest and some other places. That's one of the objectives there is to advertise what the senior council does and how you can stay connected. We also tell people you don't have to commit to be a member to participate in the meeting as an advisor. You can attend without being selected and be a community advisor. We need the input. It's very critical to us. And I appreciate any thoughts you have on it. All right, thank you. Thanks for being open. Gabby. Thank you, Jack, for that uh, wonderful presentation. Um, I, I, I have a couple of questions that I have seen, you know, uh, with some seniors in my community, you know, Spanish speakers and some, uh, not, and some English, English speakers that are here in my community that are more seniors than I am. <laughs> Um, it's about isolation. Uh, have you seen uh, these uh, also uh, in the committee and in the uh, seen more senior community, you know, after the pandemic, many, many people got isolated and they stayed are isolated. And, and I don't know, what are you doing maybe to try to reach out to those folks that are still, you know, facing those uh, maybe feelings of being lonely and isolated. And also the other barrier that I see in my community I and mean, with some seniors that I have here around me is uh, the technolo technological barriers because uh, I, I know seniors that they don't have a computer or they don't, they don't, they, they struggle with some technology. Uh, I have a, a, a neighbor person that, oh, he, that person, they, they don't have their phone and a very old phone that is not even an intelligent phone. So it's, it's so are you seeing these two? Can you comment well, on that? Yeah, and that's, and I mean, I, I studied gerontology at DU and, and it is one of the most common issues that are often addressed to support the senior community is isolation. And then when you go through three years of COVID, you double down on that because of losses in family connection, community connection, and all of those things we know about. Um, the Peter Kirk Community Center is run by the Parks District, and we don't actually create the programs that are there, but we advocate for them, and we advocate for them to have uh, language um, flexibility in some of those programs. Um, we advocate for the idea of outreach. Um, obviously, what the Park District does is publish twice a year a program guide for all of the programs that are there. But it's a well-known fact that 
many of those programs are oversubscribed and there's not enough room for all the people that want to go. And that's a failing on the part of the city. I'm not going to blame anyone in particular, but the city only has so many dollars to go around. And obviously there's a limitation to what we can do. I don't know if you've ever been to the North Community Center, but that place is booked full all the time. We could build two more of those community centers, I think, and we would fill them with proper marketing and good programs and programs for ethnic communities. Those are the kinds of things we do advocate for and we do talk about. Uh, when we did a study session with the city, I gave them a list of 15 items that I thought the city could do to try to lower the cost of just living in the community with small discounts and advocacy for programs. Um, it really is an issue that has to be addressed. And it is being addressed, I know, in some of our health institutions, those like Evergreen. Um, but there's only so much you can do. And as far as the you don't have a smartphone, that is exactly the reason we produce this coffee table book called the Senior Resource Guide. I'm bringing it up again. But there are people that want to pick up a book and read and get a phone number and make a phone call and not look it up on the web. And it does work. Thanks for that question. It's an important one to consider for all of us. Okay, we have room for about one or two more questions for Jack. All right, Gabby. Uh, Jack, maybe you already have this. Um, uh, you mentioned in the presentation of things uh, that you are bringing uh, for education about maybe scams or uh, fraud. Mm -hmm. um, maybe I can connect with you. Uh, I don't know if you have the um, attorney general office. They have presentations uh, mm -hmm. that are very good. And I've been in contact with them and they have bring them, I have brought them for the community, the Spanish speakers. But I, I know if you send them a request, they can, you know, do a webinar or a presentation or even maybe come to the center. I don't know. I mean, but uh, maybe they can do something because I know also for my neighbors, I have a, a lot of seniors that are neighbors um, uh, um, and they, 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 we have seen a lot of scams uh, going on. And it seems that they, the seniors are also a target of scams as well. Mm -hmm. But well, that's what I see in my little universe, but I don't know how you see it also in the bigger picture. No, that, that's very accurate. The seniors are targeted more often by phone scams than others because seniors grow up answering the phone and being hospitable and welcoming. This is a fact of life. And they're often tricked into the fast talking salesman that's gonna get you something for nothing if you just send them a credit card or give them a, access to an account. Um, we have talked with the police department and they've done presentations before. Um, I recently had that done at my church for a group which we call the Vintage Spirits, i.e. seniors. Uh, and it was very well received and they learned a lot about just how you look at an email to turn and see if it's factual who the sender is. Uh, they're simple things, but they're not necessarily clear to a senior who's 
still learning what this new world of the web is all about. Yeah, and we're going to finish up with Shiram. Yeah, Jax, so my question has to do with uh, climate change. And I think mm -hmm. it's putting a lot of stress. I mean, especially it's getting hotter. There are more extreme weather events, which I'm sure, especially seniors as a more vulnerable community, I think it especially it becomes makes things harder for them. I'm curious as to what you're hearing from the seniors in terms of you know how this is impacting them and what are some of the needs we need to really get on the ball and start addressing before things get really bad. Yeah, one of those uh, issues came up recently from our housing chair that she discovered that some of the new low income housing does not include air conditioning. You would think that in our climate situation today uh, would be part of the build. Um, the city is doing an energy smart program to try and help people understand that there are significant discounts for heat pumps. Um, and if you are low income, the theoretical program from the IRA, uh, federal uh, legislation, could potentially pay for an entire heat pump installation. Um, but getting that word out, which the city has a program to do, uh, is sometimes it's a little more difficult to reach seniors and get them to understand they may qualify for this. It's a very complex thing to go through to select a vendor, understand the technology, and understand that even the part that may not be financed by the federal government through tax credits or rebates, and those are undefined right now, might be financed at a very low rate through a special credit union that specializes in low rates to do this. Um, I think those are the kinds of things we really have to be sensitive to. You're absolutely correct. And we have to be aware that the city needs to have cooling centers available if we start to see some of these heat waves of 95 or 100 degrees, we have to fund and open up. For example, our church can do that. Um, the, uh, the city of Kirkland needs has two resource centers. We have a library. Uh, those centers should be designated as resource centers. And then we have to provide the transportation to get people there. Um, but those are issues and they're real. We've been spared them uh, compared to our, many of our you know, southern states, but that doesn't mean they're not going to affect us as well. Thank you. Thank you for um, the very eye-opening experience, Jack. As you can tell by everyone that wants to be your best friend now, they want to connect with you and uh, meet for coffee. Uh, we, we definitely appreciate it. Um, you're welcome to stay uh, or if you'd like to go. Um, I believe Jen has uh, something to say. Um, one of the Kirkland Senior Council members had their hand raised. I think it might be the housing chair, so we're going to promote her so she can also answer the question. Okay. Karen, you should be good to go. Hi, Erin. That's Karen Hartman. She's the chair okay. of our Transportation Committee. Karen, can you turn off your limited mic? Or turn on your mic. I think she's on her phone. Karen, if you do star nine, it might do it for you.
Well, we may have to pass on that, but if any of you have questions on transportation, I can send you a document that Karen recently produced outlining many of the transportation items uh, that she monitors, and I'd be happy to share that with you. Um, Jack, I'm going to ask that you do send it to us. Uh, it just sounds like a very valuable resource that we need to read. And can you hear me now? Oh, yep. Hey, Karen. Hi, everybody. Hi, Jack. Uh, my name is Karen Hartman, and I am the head of the Transportation Committee for the Senior Council, plus I'm also on the Advocacy Committee. And through advocacy, just so that all of you know, we met with our state representatives and our senators and uh, we represent four different districts within the state, the 1st, the 41st, the 45th, and the 48th. And we advocated in terms of, you were talking about climate change, we advocated uh, to uh, help pass legislation this year uh, so that no, uh, for seniors and for others, uh, that our electricity would not be turned off in terms of heat waves and also that um, our water supplies would not be turned off for lack of being able to pay uh, during heat waves. And uh, that that legislation actually passed in our state. And, and I considered that a big win for us. Uh, but we do a lot of advocacy, uh, both on the state, local and federal level. That's one of the things that we did in terms of climate change, and I just wanted to be able to share that with you. Thank you so much, Karen. Okay, I'm going away now. Okay. All right, thanks again, Jack. Well, you're very welcome. I thank you all for uh, sitting through my 30 minutes, and uh, I am definitely someone, as you might guess, who is okay to talk with or listen to, and happy to have a cup of coffee anytime you want. I do think that all of your missions and focuses are in line with ours. Uh, we just have a smaller segment of this huge human services commitment to our city, a great city that's very inclusive and very welcoming but like any that has challenges. And I thank you for trying to solve some of them. Have a good night. You too. Next up is our staff present, uh, presenting about the Community Development Block Grant Program and the city's 2024 allocation. All right. Hello, everyone. Let me just go ahead and pull up my screen. You realize you have too many windows open. All right. So. Okay. Did everyone see my screen? Yep. Perfect. So I know that some of the folks on this call have familiarity with CDBG. Um, and some may be new to this. So I am gonna walk through some background information before we jump into this year's allocation. And we'll do questions at the end, if that's okay. It's a pretty short presentation. It's only about 12 slides. Okay, so, 
before I jump in, we are going to talk about what is CDBG, what is community development block grant funding, what type of source is it. We're going to talk about our participation in the countywide consortium and what that means as a participating city. We're going to talk about Kirkland's role in that consortium and what our status is as a joint agreement city, which is that JEC acronym that you see here. We will do just a quick refresher for those who were on the commission last year for 2023 and the awarded dollars for the consortium as well as Kirkland and where that uh, money went. And then we are going to briefly touch on the 2024 estimated allocation ahead of the public hearing that the commission will host um, next month. And I'll get into a little bit more of the nitty gritty and kind of what that means and what the role of the commission is and why we have to do a public hearing and then next steps. So what is CDBG? You'll often hear me say CDBG, ABCD, because it's just a very confusing um, jargony acronym. So CDBG is funding that comes out of HUD, um, which stands for the Department of Housing and Urban Development. And the purpose of this funding is really to promote viable, affordable communities and urban spaces. So there are certain allocations within the awards that um, the government wants us to focus on creating more affordable housing, supporting and sustaining older and aging affordable housing, as well as also being able to provide assistance and additional areas of support for low and moderate income folks. So how they determine kind of what does King County get? What does the city of Kirkland get? What does a town in Ohio get is based on a formula that has been around for several decades at this point. And those include you know, poverty rates within communities, population, population growth, lack of affordable housing, as well as maybe a larger supply of affordable housing. If anyone knows a city that has kind of right size fit affordable housing, let me know. And then um, the age of the housing. So how old is that housing? Does it need to be renovated or repaired or um, renovated? So the city participates in the larger consortium in the county, and our division essentially serves, um, sorry, let me back up, the King County Housing and Community Development Program, which is essentially our division, but much larger at the county, administers CDBG funds on behalf of King County and participating cities. So I believe within the consortium this year, we have 37 cities that are actively part of that consortium. So part of the county's role is to receive that money from HUD each year and then uh, distribute it and allocate it on city's behalf. So that was established as part of an inner cooperative agreement um, starting in 2014, and we go through a renewal process every couple years. So we're currently in the process to renew um, the inner cooperative or what you'll hear an ICA um, currently for years 24, 25, and 26. There are some exceptions, um, and they are some of the larger cities that exist in King County. So if you have a certain population number, I believe it's 100,000, you can choose to receive money directly and opt out of the consortium. So that's also partially true um, for Kirkland as well, but we participate as a joint agreement city, which I will explain what that means. So joint agreement cities are jurisdictions like Kirkland, where if we wanted to, we could directly contract with HUD to receive our dollars directly. 
but instead we choose to remain part of the consortium. So what that means is we say, hey, King County, like we would love for you to do all of our federal reporting, understand the federal regulations, and we'll pay you an admin fee to do that on our behalf. So we, along with four other cities, participate in the consortium as what's called JAC, and we sit on a larger um, administrative body that um, kind of oversees and understands kind of countywide what's going on, making sure everyone is doing what they're supposed to. Um, but at the end of the day, we submit all of our reporting to the county, and that's all we have to do. The county takes it from there and does the heavy lifting reporting up to HUD. So governance structure, like I mentioned, um, we do have what we call a JRC, which is the Joint Recommendations Committee. So it's an interjurisdictional body that, like I mentioned, provides funding recommendations. So kind of similar to what we do here, where King County staff prepare recommendations based on allocations received. It goes to this body and then it's passed and then funding is awarded throughout the county. They also um, are you know, expected to be up to date on guidelines as well as procedures regarding CDBG. And then there's a few other funding sources that this body also provides oversight and funding towards. So because we are a joint agreement city, we do rotate with the other agreement cities of who sits on this body on a two-year rotation. So right now the city of Redmond and the city of Shoreline are sitting in those seats because Kirkland rolled off in 2022. So looking at our 2023 um, allocations, as a consortium, King County received just under five and a half million dollars. One of the things that, um, like I mentioned, to kind of meet the objectives of the CDBG program is um, through kind of four different buckets. And you saw this in your packet in the memo and how we kind of divvy up our dollars. And um, HUD has very strict guidelines on caps. Um, via percentages. So based on how much a city receives, how much has to go to planning and administration, which is overhead and normally goes to support staff, how much needs to go into direct programs, so human services, so programs that this group would prepare recommendations for, housing repair, so achieving that preservation piece around existing affordable housing, and then capital projects. So being able to support new projects or renovations um, at a larger scale. So for 2023, um, what Kirkland received as part of our entitlement was just under $400,000. And so within our award, because we participate as a JRC, um, or sorry, JAC, see there's too many acronyms, Joint Agreement City. Um, because of that, we do have set aside dollars that um, support admin costs that the county incurs on our behalf. As part of our intercooperative agreement, we also agree to put in money to the countywide housing repair program, as well as the housing stability program that the county runs. So the set aside amount that you see here, the 164,000, we don't see that amount and is not available for distribution. Where that money goes is the two programs I just mentioned to support housing repair and housing stability. And then we have admin costs to support um, the capital side of um, the county administering funding as well as on the program side. What, we're, what we are able to choose how we distribute is that $227,000 amount. So 
we'll kind of dig into how that breaks out within the different objectives of the grant, but that is part of what we bring to this group as a recommendation of how we recommend spending it for the program year. The other opportunities for additional funding each program year is if there's carryover funds or recapture funds. So as part of the consortium, let's say Kirkland was awarded $200,000 and we underspent, that money could be rolled over and reallocated depending on kind of what objective it falls under within the CDBG program. And that potentially is available for additional funding as well. For 2023, there were no funds available. So this shows the set aside totals and the breakdown of the 164,000. So like I mentioned, about 12% is going towards admin costs and the remaining 30% is going towards those countywide programs. What we receive as a participating city at the end of the year is within those two programs, how many Kirkland Can't yeah. hear you all of a sudden. Can't hear you, Jen. We lost Jen. your Jen. We cannot hear you. You left us on that cliffhanger. Can you hear me? Yep. Yeah, now we can. That was so weird. My headphones turned off. Sorry about that. All of a sudden, I saw all of you look at me like, oh. Um, so like I mentioned, um, about 12% goes towards admin costs, and then the 30% goes towards the larger countywide programs. And we receive a report at the end of the year that shows how many Kirkland residents benefited from the housing stability program, as well as for the other 37 cities. I did not include that information in the packet, but if you're interested in seeing it, I'm happy to send it out. Um, for our city distribution total, this is the amount that we come to the commission with every year saying we have this amount to distribute, we have to hit these three categories, we can't go beyond these amounts, but here's how they're broken out based on county guidance based on the CDBG guidelines. So for 2023, we had $39,236 for planning and admin that tends to support human services staff that are supporting housing and homelessness directly. For the human services component, um, we normally take this award as part of one of our shelter fund dollars. So when we went through the grant funding recommendations process, we include the CDBG amount as part of our total bucket that y'all are recommending for council. So for 2023 and 2024, it was approved for congregations for the homeless, their 24-7 enhanced shelter. And then the last bucket here is um, for capital projects. And so this amount um, makes up part of our contribution that we submit to a regional coalition for housing every year to support more affordable housing in the community. So for 2024, um, this is our estimated allocation. So every year HUD sends out estimates of how much they think each city is going to receive. And part of the county's job is sending out estimates and telling us kind of, you can't exceed this amount in this bucket, but you could increase this and then you'll hit kind of your desired percentages. So this is an estimated number, but we won't have the final number until September of next year. It's a very like wonky process and working with HUD. 
Um, as you can see, we're actually getting a little bit more this year, which is exciting. Uh, we like to see that. And so again, it's supporting human services staff here at the city. Um, this would continue to support congregations for the homeless um, based on how the conversation goes at our meeting next month um, and hosting the public hearing. And then that last number would go towards ARCH for a 2024 project. So what do next steps look like? So part of the CDBG process is they have requirements that we make sure the community is aware that these dollars are available and how the city is choosing to recommend using them. So beyond kind of running it through an advisory body like the Human Services Commission, they do ask that we post a notice in our desired publication. So we post it in the Seattle Times every year um, multiple times to make sure folks know that this group is going to host a public hearing. There's an opportunity to provide public comment and feedback based on the recommendations at the public hearing. So we have submitted that public notice um, and we do plan to have the public hearing at the commission's meeting on August 22nd. And then based on the recommendations that come out of this group at the August meeting, it would go to city council in September. If they approved it, um, it would they would pass a resolution and then we would take that paperwork and we would have to submit it to the county in order to get our awards and contract for 2024. So I will stop there and see what questions folks have. Gabby. Then maybe you explain this very clearly, but I didn't get it about the capital projects. Mm -hmm. uh, that is uh, like a, the biggest chunk of that uh, CDBG. ABCD, um, yeah. EFG and, and whatever. Uh, yeah, can you explain that a little bit more? I mean, how that is, where is that money going to actually? Mm -hmm. Yeah. So the capital dollars that were awarded um, make up a portion of our contribution to ARCH, which stands for a regional coalition for housing. So they're kind of the leading funding source for affordable housing projects on the east side. Um, they have a similar group like this. Um, that is made up of community members on the east side and they put forth recommendations every year. They receive applications for a variety of affordable housing projects. They make recommendations. And then there's 16 cities that are part of ARCH, I believe. And once they have their recommendations finalized, they go around to each city council and have to present it and get approval from each city. So once they have their final recommendations, they would come to the Kirkland City Council, most likely in early 2024 with recommendations of what projects they would want to fund. And part of that would be those dollars. Am I, am I correct remembering that there was a time where the arch dollars were given to the rental assistance instead for Kirkland? Am, am, I, am I remembering that correctly? Because uh, I don't know, because I've never seen a report from Arch, or maybe yeah. I'm, I'm not supposed to, I don't know, but at least in the with the um, rent assistance program that I can see, at least in the, in the uh, uh, is, uh, groups that are giving the money, I mean, helping, you know, channel, giving the money to the people, I can see that it's affecting directly this community. Mm -hmm. Is that also an option? So 
I think what you're thinking of is House Bill 1406 dollars. So those are a funding source um, through a sales tax here at the city. And we have the choice of allocating it towards rent assistance or committing additional dollars to ARCH. And the city manager recommended that we put them towards rent assistance for the next two years. So eventually that money could go back to ARCH, but right now it's currently supporting rent assistance programs. If you are interested in getting a presentation or information about ARCH and ARCH projects, we're happy to connect with staff. I actually think it could be a really informative presentation because they have a really good understanding of gaps, um, priority populations that are underserved when it comes to affordable housing. And they're in the midst of reviewing applications right now for 2024. Shiran. Hi, Jen. So I'm just going to, here's what I took away and I'm going to ask for some more clarity. Mm -hmm. Basically, recommendation from staff is that capital project money is going to go to ARCH and the public services, human services money is congregation for homeless. Is that correct? That's the recommendation from staff to, to the commission. Is that correct? So, and we then will have a discussion in the next week, next month's meeting to and re receive input from community members and then decide if you want to stick to that or have a discussion if you want to make any changes and then send a recommendation into the city council. Is that correct? Correct. Okay. Yes. Okay, good. So then my follow-on question is, could you elaborate and say, you know, in terms of federal requirements, I understand there are fairly stringent federal requirements. What kind of causes would be possible for us to consider supporting for each of these buckets, right? So, I mean, for example, if not ARCH, what kind of causes would fill into capital project budget, for example? If not congregation for homeless, what kind of causes would fit into public services, human services? It would just be good to understand, like, you know, the buckets of causes mm -hmm. that we could consider as we are uh, kind of pondering yeah. this. Yeah, it's very strict. Um, and the guidance that we have received from the county is don't overcomplicate it. If you yeah. want to support another project initiative, use general funds dollars. Um, but within those three buckets, if we chose to not allocate the funding towards ARCH for the capital projects, I think we would have to look at other alternative models that currently fund affordable housing projects on the east side. I'm not aware of any that don't go through ARCH at this time. They're a pretty strong regional player and they help applicants also seek funding at the state level and the county level as well. But it could be a question that we could pose um, to staff internally. Um, I also would anticipate city council would most likely push back on that because of the contributions that we honor as part of a participating city with ARCH. Um, for the human services dollars, historically, we have funded homeless shelters because folks that fall in the unhoused category are defined as one of the populations where we don't have to get income verification, um, which is something the county has asked that we be mindful of in making our funding recommendations um, because of the 
volume of folks that they have to oversee and potentially collect income documentation from tens of thousands of participants in the larger consortium. Um, but so we historically, we've always picked one of our homeless shelters because we're never able to fully fund them. Um, and they're often overprescribed in their services. So um, the, I think the last four cycles, we've supported congregations for the homeless. The other consideration um, in contracting with a nonprofit organization um, with federal dollars is we have to run them through a risk assessment to determine of the success of them subcontracting with federal dollars and potentially having to go through a federal audit if need be. And there's only certain size organizations that the city from a risk management um, perspective is comfortable with subcontracting. They normally have to have a proven track record of successfully managing and tracking those dollars and being able to report on them. So often we have smaller organizations that are maybe doing really great work. Um, we try to be mindful of contracting with them with general funds dollars um, to kind of help support learning how to do reporting and kind of managing data. Um, and we look to some of our larger players that have the staff and the expertise and the bandwidth to track it in a very specific way. Because it the CF or the CDBG dollar requirements of how they report demographics served and population and household composition is um, challenging because it requires a lot for agencies and it tends to look really different than what a lot of agencies do. And so we try to be really cognizant of the organizations that we're subjecting them <laughs> to do that um, with the folks that they're serving. And then with the um, admin dollars, um, there are very few positions at the city that kind of fall within the eligibility criteria. Um, so Amanda's position, the well-being coordinator position falls under it. The homeless outreach coordinator position now falls under it. My position falls under it because we touch CDBG dollars um, and we're helping with the oversight and compliance with it. Um, there's no other positions at the city that would meet the criteria at this point in time. That was probably yeah. way more information than you wanted, but there you no. have it. No, I Thank you, Jen. I, I think the reason I'm asking is I'm just trying to say, okay, if we are supposed to make a decision, I'm trying to understand what are our choices. And what I'm really hearing is really you have two choices and that's pretty much it. So really you don't have any choices. It's kind of what I'm hearing. And that's what I'm kind of trying to get a better understanding of the field of play to say, are there legitimate choices? And I'm just saying, I just want to understand. I'm not, sure. these are good organizations. I'm not, I don't have anything against them. I'm just kind of, I'm going to make a decision. I want to know my choices and I'm just trying to understand what the choices are. So sure. uh, before we kind of make the decision. So yeah. if this is it, this is it. But I'm just kind of curious if there are other choices that we could consider. Because I know, for example, as looking at a couple of years ago, I think Sophia Way was funded for example, which is a different organization. So there are clearly other organizations that have, that have been funded. Now, they could have been special funds with different rules because, you know, as part of the COVID stuff, I don't know, you know, the, the particulars there, but I'm just saying that I have seen others. So mm -hmm. I was just curious how to approach this decision. Yeah. Great questions. It's a very strict funding source. I wish it wasn't. Gabby, I think that's the last question before I'm going to turn it back to Joy. 
Uh, very quick. So maybe I, I am a little bit confused because if we don't have too many too many options, why do we have a public hearing if there are no options? And what I mean, what is the? Sorry, maybe I'm I am very. <laughs> yes. uh, uh, Lay it on but, me. But I, but yes. I am I am I need to understand. I mean, it, are we doing it because it's required to do that we have a public hearing? But we only have two choices. So what are we going to tell the people that come to that public hearing and say something contrary? I mean, what? What is, what is the response that this commission is going to give to the public hearing if we only have two choices? Why do we, I mean, it's, it's kind of, doesn't make sense, sorry. So I wanna, I guess, circle back. It's not that we only have two choices, it's that there are very few bodies that can receive this funding and manage it successfully. So, to take one of our smaller organizations as an example for tomorrow, it would require a significant administrative overhead to give them the dollars to do rent assistance. And we would have to ask more of participants in their program to reveal personal information that we would have to submit to the federal government. So there are certain regulations within the funding stream that we as a staff severely limit your options because of that. So, yeah, yeah maybe, then, maybe I'm not questioning the options. I'm questioning why do we have to have a public hearing when we don't have a lot of options of organizations that can perform that job successfully and mm -hmm. can meet the criteria to administer federal funding and have the human capacity and the knowledge and all the know-how how to do it. I mean, if, if we know that we have very limited options because of all the criteria that has to be fulfilled, what is the intention or what is the purpose of having a public hearing? Just, I mean, I just would like to understand what we are going to be, why? Because we're, we are required to do it. Okay. And this body serves as within a capacity where you can host that public hearing. And I just wanted to add, it's not just who has the capacity, who wants to, like those folks have to agree to take the funds, right? And that's a very small amount of organizations as well. Yeah, that, that's a great point. There's actually a lot of agencies that once they see the list that we have to do, they're like, yeah, we actually don't want to do this. Like, is there a way to get funding with looser restrictions? Like it's, it's, it's really unfortunate the amount of requirements we have associated with really like $40,000 that we're administering via human services grants. I mean, I'm just going to ask Jen if, if this is wasted work, then, you know, feel free to have me back off. But I just want to, if there is a possibility of at least even one other organization that is, you can say, eligible, capable, uh, you know, a possibility, it would be good for us to at least have the staff let us know what they are. You know, we may decide not to, but it would just be helpful to at least know, are there others that could, you know, do it? And then we can just say, yeah. So because as Gabby was saying, when we go doing a public hearing, I would love to present at least three choices, okay? If you're picking so, two, you know, so it just feels like, then it feels real. Otherwise, it just feels like it's a rubber stamp is basically what we're doing. Mm -hmm. And sometimes that's all you have to do. I'm not saying, this is the nature of this job, I suppose. Sometimes it's a rubber stamp, but it'd be 
good to do some due diligence there. If it is not a huge amount of work, I don't know how much work it is. So, you know, and you have, you folks have a lot on your plate. So. So I think what we can do based on what I'm hearing is we can kind of look at the list of current awardees because we do have to fund someone that has a current award within the 23-24 kind of grant cycle awardees. We can pull from that list and show as the presentation before we open the public hearing, like here are all of the options and then we can, and this is part of next month's presentation, like why we're recommending the one that we're recommending. Sounds like that would be helpful for this group. So we can do that. Thank you. Yeah. Melantha. I just want to speak up from my experience. When I um, was a little bit newer in the commission, I didn't understand how much back work the staff did. You know, I first thought that I was coming and that we would have to do all that back work, find the organizations. And I just really realized, and I'm kind of speaking up and saying, saying thank you, that like when you're like, we kind of already wing through them or do this. Like, I think it would be cool to know some of the lists as he's saying to know who was kind of weaned out because of not wanting to do the double the checklist or things like that. So we can just know like, hey, well, it might have started with 10 and now we're only down to two because of that. So not necessarily that we have to be a part of it, but just having that information available. Also, thank you guys, because you do a lot of work to prepare us to make these decisions and to be able to weigh in. So thank you. Well, I appreciate you digging into why are we doing this like this? Okay, Jory, I'm done. I just got to reiterate, thank you for what Melantha just said. Um, the last business item for tonight is the election of officers to serve as chair and vice chair for the upcoming term. The chair and vice chair are elected annually to serve for a 12-month term. The chair is responsible for presiding over commission meetings, and the vice chair is responsible for performing the duties of the chair in the event the chair is not present. Additionally, the chair and or the vice chair may be called upon to attend other meetings with members of city council, the community, or staff. We will utilize parliamentary procedure to conduct the election. I will call for nominations for each position separately, again, chair, then vice chair for the 12-month term. I am ready to take nominations, uh, excuse me, I am ready to take nominations for chair. Uh, Jonathan. Yeah, I'd like to nominate Jory Hamilton for chair. Yeah. He has uh, shown great leadership over the few years we've worked together. And as vice chair, you've done an amazing job. And uh, I look forward to uh, seeing what you can do in the future. So I nominate you for chair. Except. Thank you, Jonathan. Gabby. Uh, I second what Jonathan uh, proposes, Jory Hamilton. For chair for the commission, it's been a real pressure, a real pleasure. Uh, <laughs> sorry, sorry for good. my my uh, my my words, but it's been a real pleasure seeing you as the vice chairs, and I know you would be a great chair for the commission, and you have all the good characteristics of the chair. Thank you. Are there any other nominations?
Okay, if there are no more nominations, I ask for a show of hands for those who vote for uh, myself, or just say aye. Uh, aye. 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 Thank you so much. Uh, I will now take nominations for vice chair. Again, nominations for vice chair of the 12th month term where you fit in the fill in for the chair when they're not present and some additional meetings potentially. Uh, who uh, has nominations for vice chair? Okay, I'll, I'll go. I, I nominate Gabby for vice chair. Um, and before she uh, unmutes, I'd also like to reiterate that like our new members, I, I've noticed that uh, she's been very consistent for advocating for various aspects of our community and uh, is very willing to ask the questions that others might be afraid to. I think there's value in that. I'll second the nomination. Uh, Gabby, do you accept? Uh, yes. Awesome. Thank you. You're welcome. Do we have any other nominations? Okay, if there are no more nominations, I ask for a show of hands or saying yes for a vote for Gabby. Uh, yes. Yes. Awesome. And with that, uh, we have our new chair and vice chair. And we will move on to, <laughs> thank you. All right, thank you, everyone. Oanta? Uh, that was a mistake. Oh, okay. Um, so we're gonna finish off with communications before we adjourn. Uh, are there any commissioner reports? All right, Gabby? After Gabby, we'll go with Sir Ron. Uh, just I uh, would like to share that Jory uh, and I completed the Kirkland Initiative training that takes eight weeks. And it's a real good experience that I would recommend to everybody in this group if you would like to get more uh, familiar with how the how the city works and all like um, Melanta was saying that, you know, we don't know what is behind behind scenes, all the things that have to be done and all the work that is done in order for to run a city, to run our city. Um, and also it, it, it's a great experience. So if I, I, I recommend it for, for everybody. Zero. So this is kind of off script, I guess. I don't really have a report. I had more a question. I just wanted to point out that I feel like when we have meetings, there's questions and things you have follow up on. It doesn't feel like there is an opportunity for us to have a discussion. 
in the agenda that we have. So I'm just curious how we want to do those things. Like, you know, as we're looking through stuff, you know, getting background, especially for newer people, like newer members like me, you know, questions such as all the organizations were funded, historical, you know, this data, it's very hard to go through that data, get a good sense of what's going on. So, and, you know, just other questions that come up. So is it possible for us to, I don't know, keep some time on the agenda, just have an open discussion so we can have more of a Q&A and just sharing of ideas because, or is it supposed to be we just meet outside the meetings and do that? I mean, I'm I'm trying to understand how this body operates. And so I would like to kind of not just be a fire and forget we show up once a month and then we do whatever we want. You know, I don't, I don't think people are operating like that, but I'm just not clear how we kind of have more of a, you can say, discussion and debate and Q&A in this uh, forum. So I'll let Jen and the staff answer that in one sec, um, but I wanted to just clarify, are you talking about when we have a presenter? Uh, we ask, what, okay, so more so like, so this is- About the body, more about the body, about, you know, so more, yeah, not about specific topics, but more just about the overall body, the responsibilities, the history, the how it operates, you know, those kinds of questions. It's so right now we're in a section eight communications and we have commissioner reports and staff reports and announcements. Are you asking or um, recommending that we begin scheduling a time instead of um, commissioner reports um, alone? We could also add, are you suggesting to have uh, discussion within communications, that section? Like basically yeah, the time of the meeting. Yeah, that is that is a suggestion. But again, what I'm trying to say is I'm also trying to understand how this body operates. So so I don't want to necessarily kind of suggest something that is because this is a public body. There's public rules and regulations, and there are certain things that you can and cannot do. So I so I want to be respectful of that too. So that's why I'm just kind of, you know, trying to understand. You know, this may not be the best. Some of these debates may not be best on a public thing like this. Maybe, maybe not. I don't know. I'm trying to understand how best to uh, get some of the questions. I have a list of questions and you know, I can directly follow up with staff. I get it, right? Which is a way to do it. But some of these could be learning for everybody else too, especially people like Christian and you know, both of us are kind of newer to this. I'm just curious how, how to fit that into our operational rhythm. All right, um, Jonathan, do you want to touch up on yeah. that? Okay. Yeah, and, and I'm sure um, you know Jen has wants to jump in too. Um, sounds like it, the types of things you're referring to would be something I would expect to see, like in an orientation, like your onboarding, where you could sit down with staff and and ask your questions and get them answered. Where, like this particular year, we're doing more education because it's a non-funding cycle year, so we're meeting with all these different agencies and learning from them and hearing about them, and that was based on a request we had. But during the funding cycle year, when we're reviewing the what was 109 applications last year, we had lots of debate and lots of discussion and and uh, really rich, rich uh, discussion about the priorities and, and the issues in the city and, and, and challenging each other on, on different perspectives. So um, that happens a lot during that funding cycle year. Um, but uh, um, it sounded like that was why we needed more, like go deeper with orientation. But um, I don't know, Jen or any, do you guys have thoughts already? Yeah. Yeah, I think if it's more about how the body functions, staff are happy to meet with anyone who's interested and kind of learning more about it. We can rewalk through kind of the orientation, maybe now that folks are doing it. Um, 
The other option could be going to coffee with the chair or vice chair and like asking questions and building a relationship. We obviously have to be mindful of quorum, but I would encourage the commissioners to lean on each other as well. Um, I know there's other commissions and boards that have like a mentee when someone is new that transitions on. I don't know if this body has ever done that, but I think there's value in kind of hearing it from your peers versus staff. Cause I think you've learned based on receiving it from both. So I'm happy um, and then am available to meet for coffee and just chat. Annie is super knowledgeable as well. So we're happy to do that, but also, there's several folks on here that have a lot of knowledge and experience that predate me, so they can be great resources as well. Um, sorry, go ahead, Sarah. I said that's yeah, I just wanted to kind of bring that up. I think I got some perspective here. So, and and all so the other thing that I do, if it's okay, okay real quick, um, the other thing that I do is I sit on the Redmond Human Services Commission. So I do what you all do, but for Redmond. <clears throat> here I'm staff, but I will tell you on that side, I've been on that commission for seven years. And as people are transitioning in, right, I, I think you're right. I think there are a lot of things to learn and we do the best we can in real time to, to help with those explanations. The, the reason why sometimes we don't have, we have two hours a month. Um, so I think it's a tension. Um, we have that tension as well. Um, when do we have time to talk? But I think there are more um, very specific duties that we are um, charged with to, to accomplish. And so I think background information on how, how that is done, but the conversations that you're talking about, I think to Jonathan's point, a lot of that, those conversations will happen um, in the next funding cycle. Um, as you're talking about organizations in real time, you can talk about like, okay, this is, I remember when we had this, they came in and they presented and have those conversations. Well, I know that I'm hearing in the community, this is a real um, strong need in the community. So you also bring in your knowledge and your, your expertise into those conversations as well. Um, but there is, you know, two hours isn't very long. And so to have those really deep, meaningful conversations within these other meetings is really challenging. Okay, thank you. Any other commissioner reports? Joe, are you gonna talk about the ballot at all? Uh, could you say that again? Are you going to talk about the ballot at all? Oh, uh, yeah, so there is a initiative and I really should know the name of it because I'm on the pros committee for it. And in a nutshell, there are several park projects that we as a city are considering on funding with the uh, permission, if you will, votes from the, the community. And one of the big projects would be a aquatics and recreation center. And others include um, areas where you could play pick up, uh, pickleball, uh, areas where you now have access to bathrooms uh, much more easily throughout the city. And those are just a few examples on top of team um, program operational costs uh, that it would fund. Uh, if you have questions for that, please let me know. If I can't answer this right now, uh, there's a helpful link 
and uh, more than happy to talk about it, especially because it's my responsibility to do so. Um, but yeah, that's what I'm up to. Okay, do we have any staff reports or announcements from staff? I, I have one, and I'm not meaning to put this person on the spot, Gabby. But um, back in May, um, the team was um, so excited, so honored um, to be present for uh, the East Side Civic Leadership Award Ceremony. I will include a link for you all if you're interested in going there to see what this is about. Um, but this um, group, this body of folks, um, which included Eastside, Eastside for All, For Tomorrow, IACS, um, Kalika Curry's Pono Pursuit, um, MCNA, and Amazon were all part of this body of advisory committee um, who took applications and it was over, I think it was during 2022 um, and nominations for community folks who were doing um, amazing work. Um, I think really more specifically um, immigrant refugee um, BIPOC folks by and for organizations. So um, uh, your very own uh, Gabby um, was one of those awardees. And um, and it was really amazing, and we're so proud of her, and we were so so happy to be there to um, to celebrate you. So congratulations! Congrats, Gabby. Thank you. Thank you, Annie. Do we have any more? Uh, staff reports or any more awards that the staff want to tell us that we have been awarded. Do we have a motion to adjourn? So moved. Do we have a second? Second. All right. Uh, this meeting is adjourned uh, July 25th, 2023 at 8.37 p.m. Have a good hey, month. Congratulations, Jory and Gabby. Thank Congrats. Congrats, Gabby. Thank you all. Thank you.